Green Chatters and welcome to another episode here on the Green Living Chat Podcast. My name is David Ousimenza. I'm your host here on the podcast. Today, I have the privilege to have an exciting conversation with my Shelby on sustainability education, why it hasn't worked. Mai is an educator and sustainability professional with more than 10 years of working experience in both fields. She has worked in Egypt, India, Kenya, and now in the UAE on education programs with people of almost all ages from kindergarten to adults and everything in between. The programs she worked on span various fields such as environmental conservation, cultural exchange, and diplomacy, business management and consulting, agriculture, food security, and natural resource management. She is passionate about both education and environment and sees their confluence as key to sustainable future. And goodness, I had a super exciting conversation that I really honestly can't wait to share this with you. Our conversation today was mainly to just give you an overview of the state of sustainability education or education for sustainable development and give you insights of the loopholes in there and how we can make the way forward. So we talked about adult education. We talked about education in developed and developing nations in formal sector and how society supports education. Oh yes, and we did dive into greenwashing as well. This and more in today's conversation, and I just can't wait for us to dive into it. But before we dive into it, I just want you guys to note that the biggest talk show on climate is coming. And this week, we have already started COP27, which is happening on the motherland in Egypt. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have exciting conversations where leaders of different nations and climate stakeholders come on stage to repeat promises they made last year and also include the ones they forgot to actually add to their presentations. These and many other people will be traveling all the way from different parts of the world to Egypt to enjoy chats, meetings here and there. Meanwhile, the vulnerable people stay at home on their screens or on the radio waiting patiently to see what is going to happen. Meanwhile, we are already preparing for COP28. So stay tuned to updates. We are not going to bring you updates on this podcast, but we hope that COP27 can deliver. Now let's dive into today's conversation. See you on the other side. This is the Green Living Chat Podcast. Here, we define sustainability, educate and discuss feasible solutions to achieve a regenerative ecosystem. In a world where sustainability has become a cliche and misused in practice, we bring you inspiring stories from the industry, research and development, and all stakeholders in between. And together, we can promote the sustainability agenda across the globe. This podcast is proudly produced and sponsored by our team at Echo Amid Solutions in Ghana. We come your way with new episodes this and every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. So dear Green Chatters, let's get started. Hello, May. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Green Living Chat podcast. Ah, gosh, I've been so waiting for this conversation. And uh, super excited about what we're going to talk about today. 
So um, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm also really excited about this conversation. If you have listened to the introduction of this podcast, you know that we are in for a treat today. And of course, um, let's get to know a little bit about you, um, May. I know you have a very interesting background of Egypt, a little bit of North Africa, but then you're currently in the Middle East somewhere. Um, tell us a little bit about where you are joining us from today. All right. Wonderful. Uh, so I'm uh, in Dubai right now. At home. Okay, it's warm there. No, what's the weather? Yeah, now? the weather it's uh, getting a bit better. So it's starting to cool. What is it today? The temperature today is. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it's 28 degrees, which Ooh, for us is that's uh, warm. It's for us that's relatively cool. <laughs> it's in this the 40s winter, over obviously. the summer. <laughs> yeah, so winter is starting here. Winter is coming, as they say. And um, yeah, the weather is lovely. It's uh, outdoor time, finally. So we're uh, starting to, you know, go to the beach and do okay. some treks and spend some time outdoors, which is lovely. <laughs> Sounds exciting already. I mean, here in yeah. Costa Rica, it's like raining for literally every day. You know, recently there's been the hurricane stuff, so... We are now experiencing the aftermath of it. So, I mean, it's a good weather. You cannot complain. I mean, looking at 28 degree, we are seeing about, I think, between 17, 21 thereabouts. That's like an average, right? Yeah. Interesting anyway. So, I mean, if there is this one thing that brings you joy, what is that thing? I think it's uh, spending time outside in nature. Is this (laughs) something you've been doing for a long time or something? Do you get the chance to do that? So on a weekly basis, I have to. That's how I kind of, uh, you know, refresh to to go ahead with the following week, whether it's uh, at the beach or well, now that the weather is cooler, we can be in the mountains or in the desert. All to me is lovely, but just being outside, yeah. whether it's just hanging out or walking or swimming or trekking or cycling, whatever it may be, but just... Uh, Spending that time in nature is uh, is always a good boost. In Costa Rica, you don't have that challenge, right? I pretty like, not at all. Oh goodness, yes, you know. But I mean, of course, urbanization is happening. So the city center, like you know, San Jose, is always um, difficult to find. But they have a good thing that they do in every neighborhood. They sort of have like parks where you can go there, and and that's something that I love about this place. They make sure that every neighborhood has this. Anyways, um, let's let's dive into today's conversation. I came across your article that was on sustainability education is critical to mitigating environmental damage. I mean, I, I read this article. It gave me an interesting overview of your personality and I was I was really challenged by this article and I really wanted to dive into a conversation with you and get to know a little bit more about you. And I wonder where the glimpse of this, I mean, of course, is coming from a number of years of your career and experience that you have gotten. Could you sort of draw any strings from, you know, um, your childhood that has brought you to this level in your career? Could you tell us a little bit about this childhood experience that, um, you could always connect it to what you're doing right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think my connection with this uh, field came a little bit later, to be honest. Uh, so I grew up in uh, Abu Dhabi, in the UAE. I now live in Dubai, so a different city. But at the time when I lived in Abu Dhabi, environmental sustainability was 
not a topic of conversation really it was uh, we didn't learn about it at school the country changed drastically over the past uh, 20 years or so and now like you're saying there are parks everywhere much more green environmental sustainability is everywhere recycling facilities etc like to make our daily lives more environmentally friendly but at the time that wasn't the case yeah and so I kind of grew up actually distant from that and when I went to university I went to university in Egypt I studied maths as a major um, I mean I minored in sociology and economics but in my major again like environmental sustainability was not a part of what I studied <laughs> uh, and there weren't any like um, you know activities clubs uh, student organizations and stuff that are inter- that are doing that kind of thing but there was a lot of humanitarian work And I got very interested in humanitarian work and uh, moving from Abu Dhabi to Cairo uh, and seeing the drastic kind of difference in the living standards and poverty levels. And, uh, you know, you can imagine how it is. Um, I think that kind of shock was what inspired me initially, uh, continues to inspire me. I continued my studies in the economics and international development. So I studied, I did my master's in that. And from there uh in, so it was a long way coming you know and i know during my master's uh, we're studying development studies and you know we talked about policies and law and education and uh, so many different uh, topics um and i found that food security was kind of not highly prominent not highly covered and I couldn't help but kind of um feel like that's a very major missing link there yes. <laughs> you know you know if people are not getting fed well if they're not meeting their basic needs then how could we uh, think of other things what prompted me into this is actually my concern for food security um, and development Um, and so maybe I'll come to that story later but that took me to Kenya and I worked on a farm there (laughs) to learn about farming and food security in rural communities Uh, I also wanted to travel, of course, um, (laughs) and so it was a good opportunity to do both. Yeah. But yeah, during my time there and spending time on the farm, initially with the intention of learning about food security, that got me into all the different concerns and environmental concerns. Of course, my time in Egypt, Egypt has a lot of beautiful nature, so I started to explore, but it was really my time in Kenya that made me understand that link between uh, social and economic well-being yeah. Um, food security issues to environmental issues. Yeah. And uh, once that clicked, that was it. <laughs> it was all connected from there for me. Such a, such an yeah. interesting journey that you have been through, and I love the cultural differences that you experienced and sort of trying to work with people from the grassroots and communities and that's actually one thing I love about the article you wrote of course I'm talking about this a lot but we'll be diving into it um, (laughs) (laughs) very soon but whenever I get the chance to talk to prominent people like this who have thrived through the system and made it and they are sort of you know like role models um, to lots of people I want to ask you um, a question that I'm very, very passionate about um, because I see a lot of inequality in in, in the world right now. And especially when women are able to do certain things that, of course, every human can do, we cheer them. And for me, my problem is not about cheering them. My problem is that why is it that we exceptionally want to cheer them up? Because there is a lot of inequality in terms of education to the girl child to the women to do exciting things and I see them to be such a powerful you know Mm -hmm. um, group of people who 
can do so much and have so much potential. And I just want you to just in one minute, what will be this thing that you're telling a girl child somewhere or sort of a young person out there who is trying to, you know, choose the courses through his path, his or her path to get to that ultimate career? Because you did um, math and um, philosophy and um, as your bachelor's, you came into development and, you know, something related to grassroots education and all that. How, what influenced these things and what would be this one thing that you can say to this young person out there to not give up, but always make sure that, you know, these are things to sort of pick up along the way um, to be able to get to that ultimate, you know, place you want to be. <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound cliche, but I would say follow your heart. And, I'm, and I don't know if what exactly, I did yes. was the right thing, but I'll, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit of what I did. <laughs> Might not have been like, I'm happy with it. Sounds maybe a little bit um, insane to other people. But when I first graduated from my bachelor's, I worked for one week in the field um, of uh, of risk management, which essentially is uh, the field that you know, my, my major qualified me for. And I'm like, nope, this is not for me. Um, <laughs> I want to do something more meaningful. And um, I didn't yet. I went to work at a startup for six months in marketing, um, digital marketing, super cool. But once the startup, you know, it was a thrill to bring it up. But once uh -huh. it was up and running, <laughs> I lost the thrill of, you know, selling more products, etc. Wow. You have so, been through uh, it all. I <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, nope, once again, I want to work in education. And mm -hmm. um, and I left again, and I went to India and worked at a school for six months. My goodness. Um, and I'm like, yeah, wow. this is it. And then I came back to Egypt to work in education NGOs until my master's in the story that I just yeah. told you. You know, it, it's a winding road, but when we're still young, yeah, again, this comes from a privileged I must admit, point of view where I didn't have to support family. I didn't have to, That's it. you know, so, yep. so I had the ability or like that option to be able to explore and find and, and do what I wanted to do. Of course, that's a privilege that not everyone is granted. People might need to get a job and pay the bills and support themselves or support their family, et cetera. So it's a little more challenging that way, of yeah. course, much more challenging. But if there is an opportunity... Uh, to go and explore explore go for you know, it follow go for it follow your heart follow your passions and one thing will lead to another <laughs> wow and we are so glad that you finally ended up with something that you're super passionate about and that's all about you know education for sustainable development and that's what we want to discuss today i mean generally um let's give a little bit of background to this conversation what do we mean by um sustainability in education or as you um, might put it education for um, sustainable development typically it is uh, referred to like you said education for sustainable development and it's just an educational approach that aims to raise awareness and build capabilities among students and the community at large uh, in sustainable issues so that's kind of like the the book definition as the title explains it's simply getting people on board with sustainability and in my personal opinion, education is very wide and we're going to dive exactly. into that. By no means, when we say educational approach, do we mean school <laughs> and university only? Um, but it's just any form of, you know, any pathway to getting knowledge and getting on board a sustainable development. Yeah, it's a good definition, but it sort of gives me a little bit of, you know, 
sadness because I feel like, well, if this is what sustainable sustainability education is, then what what are we doing? Well, I'm I'm actually preparing for a presentation tomorrow. So yesterday I was just preparing my slides. I'm just going to read one of my slides to you. And Please. it's about transitions in sustainable jobs. And I have this idea that I want to put out the annual CO2 emissions from 1750 to 2022. Mm-hmm. And telling people about how our emissions have been and why there should be transitions and every job needs to be adapt sustainability. And so with your definition of sustainability in education or education for sustainable development, I think about how we have seen these trends and emissions going. And you can see an average in 1950 that we were emitting about 5 billion tons um, a year. And if you look at what has happened in 50 years, we are now emitting over 35 billion tons oh a year and look at the difference so if we are preparing people for climate conversations and climate action as that says and i think this has been in existence for several years what what are we doing and so i just want to sort of ask you that if you hear about <laughs> this agency of climate change mm. and the need for adaptation and mitigation what is definitely the role of education and how how far have we gone with this <laughs> oh yeah what have, <laughs> what have we been doing all this time i 100 percent agree with you and these numbers are shocking this uh, reminds me of another um podcast that you've hosted actually you've hosted uh isaac stoddard i hope i'm pronouncing the name correctly oh yeah uh, also on why haven't we bent the global emissions oh, curve after decades of climate mitigation <laughs> i'm like exactly <laughs> You know what? Is, what are we? What are we doing, or what are we not doing? Education has been there, but education has been too slow. Educational institutions, the formal ones, often are quite large, um, and with this massive size, uh, priorities are shifted. There's often a priority in just getting people through basic education, just making sure that everybody's getting yeah. a degree, everybody's going through the system, everybody's graduating. And unfortunately, climate comes in yeah. as not a priority. And so really, like you're saying, what have we been doing? And it's another another really sad kind of number is that just now, uh, the World Economic Forum released a video just oh, yeah. <laughs> in the past few days, mm-hmm. and only three countries uh, in the world can confirm that every school kid learns climate science. Only three, Italy, Cambodia, and Argentina, and we're 2022. And I mean, we've known about climate and increase of carbon emissions and all of that since the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. 50 years later. Uh, this is where we are. So unfortunately, education, formal education has been very slow in the past. But I must say that I think that is changing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think hopefully. there needed to be, hopefully, <laughs> there needed to be a critical mass that is reached. Um, I think, uh, I'm speculating, but I think that there needed to be a critical mass that is reached to have some real change happen. You know, there were few environmental activists before, information wasn't widespread. Uh, so, of course, this has been kind of halting the progress and crippling the progress. Exactly. And also, it's not just that, but it's also accessibility to different people. 
in the community where I find myself in, you know, most of the people that surround me are very much aware of climate change and understand it and are environmentally conscious. And, and I was surprised myself to find how many people actually speak English in the world. So first that there are around 7,000 languages in the world. Mm -hmm. 94% of the world's population does not speak English as their first language. And 75% does not speak mm -hmm. English at all. 75% does not speak English at all. That to me was a shocking statistic. Wow. And so sure in the English speaking world or those of us who can speak English, we feel like, yeah, like climate is talked about, you know, mm -hmm. everywhere. We're aware mm -hmm. it's present, it's there. But I didn't realize how much of a minority we were. I knew that people were left behind, but I honestly <laughs> didn't realize that this was the number. Yeah. Wow. And so, of course, that plays a role. Not everyone is informed, but education is also highly reliant on government initiatives. And I would say governments haven't been as fast either. Wow. You, you are, you're really bringing very interesting um, thoughts in here and ah, gosh, well, anyways, let's let's dive into your uh, your article itself, and I think these things are going to pop up again. And so, I mean, globally, um, we think that we are trying to do a lot, as you mentioned, that things are changing um, a little bit in here. And you see that the youth are very, very strong. I mean, oh gosh, recently, um, actually yesterday, I was watching a video, and <laughs> um, someone was talking about how um, activists in Europe are taking, you know, over the museums, and you know, I don't know if you've seen this, yeah, the appalling, yeah. all sort of things on arts and potato soup <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean should, we'll not dive into the other bits of it because this is a very controversial issue but the whole idea is people are doing everything to bring awareness and i don't know if in its form it's sort of education but well the youth is willing to do things um in a different way that the formal um approach is failing but I mean, you mentioned a little bit about some of the loopholes and the reason why we have not gotten to where we want to be. But it's just basically because we are using a certain formal approach, which is not very efficient for recent times, right? And and one of the things that you mentioned that is really, really shocking is about the language. And of course, that's the main way that you can get through people's hearts about, um, you know, speaking to them about facts and things that are happening so that they will be able to sort of um, move to action. Moreover, they're receiving the other side of the action because the other day I was just thinking, if someone is aware of, you know, sustainability and climate change and its impact, blah, 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 and wants to make a change, the society even doesn't allow him to make that change. Because I look at our household, I was talking to my wife about this because we separate our waste at home but then when the waste collectors come for it, we have to put them together, right? Oh. And so I think <laughs> about it, and we live in a neighborhood where we don't have enough land where we can compost, right? And so I this thing baffles my mind a lot. Like, I'm always thinking about it. Should I write a proposal to the municipality and tell them that, hey, I have an approach where I want you to sort of take this approach and try and do some segregation. It will bring jobs. It will bring a lot of things. So, I mean, that's another side of the conversation about, you know, education and its aftermath, right? But then let's dive a little bit into the formal education and whether it's effective now or not. And what are some of these loopholes that you can identify aside some of these issues that you raised about languages? Okay, so to build on something that you were just talking about, and I'll go back to the formal education yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about your experience, how you segregate your waste at home, but then when the waste collectors come, you have to bring your 
waste again together. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to reflect on that because I've experienced that as well. Of course, I think many of us here, and I'm sure the listeners sure. have as well. And it's not just when it comes to environment, like even in my previous work prior to getting into environmental education, I was still working in education and in Egypt, for example, where I was working in a quote unquote, an underprivileged uh, community, all the life skills and everything that we were trying to kind of, you know, ingrain and teach uh, the children that came to the NGO were very different from the life skills that they probably needed to get by Mm. in their own realities. Yeah. And no matter what we did, if their own reality back in their own homes uh, Mm -hmm. and within where they lived didn't change, then uh, our efforts were often futile. Or maybe we even created a dissociation between these children and their environment. And so it's very complex. And that's actually why I I, I feel really passionately about adult education Mm -hmm. and what you just said. Because I think working with children, I mean, I've been working with children all ages, but mainly children uh, for the larger part of my career. But I've started to realize that that is the more long-term solution. And we'll again, we'll get to that. Long-term is, of course, super important. But if we want to talk about right now, then it's the adult's. And if we want to make real change right now, quickly, urgently, then how do we do it? You know, how how can we make this a reality? How can we change the waste collector system? Mm -hmm. Uh, How can we get more people into renewable energy? How can we get, you know, instead of the waste collectors, they have now recycling plants. Instead of uh, people mining for coal, they have their solar panel systems and they become solar panel experts uh, or any sort of renewable energy and so on and so forth. And so it's this reskilling of adults. And how do we reskill adults fast enough? How can we make that change fast enough? So we know now that this is what needs to happen. We know that we need the green economy. We need circular economy. We know the industries that are needed for the future, for our survival, essentially. Because without those urgent current changes, unfortunately, teaching children might be too late because by the time they graduate, (laughs) the, the world is you know, all burnt up. It's a different place. And so if we don't make those urgent changes, then they have to be done together. And so looking at adult education, this is where I'm very interested in these short-term programs, short modular education, continuing education, uh, vocational education, but let's make them shorter. Let's not deter adults that are now definitely not privileged enough to take time off. You know, they have to support their families probably at that point in their life. They cannot go for three or four or, you know, how many years of uh, education to get a degree and uh, not be earning income at that point, at that time. And it's not fast enough either. You know, two to four years is one, a deterrent, and two, it's just not fast enough. (laughs) Um, So we need these shorter modular programs to get all of these adults into these trainings, work with the government. And I think this is one of the main deterrents also. But I think for adult education, of course, governments need to make regulations and policy for, like the example you gave, for waste collection, for there be to be a mandate that waste is segregated. Exactly. There has to be that mandate. It has to come from government. There has to be policy, regulations, and so on. Once it is mandated, then we look at how it can be implemented or put that plan forward and, you know, prior and so on. But they need to work together, education Mm -hmm. and government. Government is often fearful of mandating such things because how will they make the transition happen? How will they actually make it implemented? And 
that's when education comes in. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we need to work together. They need to do the mandate, governments, and us educators need to make the transition happen. Um, we know what is needed. We have the skills to train. You know, we are <laughs> capable of doing this. Uh, it just needs to be organized. And wow. so and so adult education for me is really the, the cornerstone because otherwise children are dissociated from their reality. They are very aware of climate, but they see nothing happening around them. They go back home. Life is as it is status quo everywhere they go they simply will get angry and resentful and so we need to make the change and the changes with adults you know i'm just <laughs> now realizing like such a big topic this is you know any part of this conversation it brings up so many things um in mind and i mean it's clearly showing us also how far we are from where we want to go and um i mean i always say this that i mean the the main obstacle to um, everything that is happening around the world is is our willingness if if we really want to make a change because I mean look at you made mention about circular economy we may people need to understand sustainability we need to educate people and all that but after we do all that and we have not placed infrastructure into the system to sort of make it easy for people to just apply what they have learned then it doesn't make sense and you talk about adult education and that is super super important because we need to i mean we need to adapt now right and the kids are just following what the adults are doing but they are thought in school they come back mommy we have to separate the waste and they're like ah the, the exactly. waste collection companies <laughs> do not mind i mean what do you want so a kid yeah. might want to do mm -hmm. that and so we are living like two lives it's like the whole world is yeah. living like a hollywood life and we are actors <laughs> on on stage we do all the acting and then when we come to life we live like a separate life and whilst yeah. we were talking I, I i think about you know something that we we also discussed in our prep chat uh earlier how this looks in developing countries and developed countries right i mean in your article you may mention about five critical weak knots in the education system and this brings to mind some of the things that we are mentioning as part of the adult education because i look at you know some of these inequalities with also formal education and informal education right mm -hmm. and that brings to mind something you mentioned earlier about languages right how do you tell someone who cannot read or write about climate for four years the person doesn't have time doesn't care about you know the CO2 emissions and all those big words that you're using, all they care about is what they are going to eat tomorrow or probably the, the rains are not coming for the past few months. And that is very unusual for yeah. a person's age, right? So, I mean, this looks different, but let's dive a little bit into these five um, critical nuts that you mentioned. And if you we can reflect a little bit on how this looks in developing countries and developed countries, of course. Absolutely. Typically, uh, with developed countries, one of the reasons why they are developed is a strong education system. And so the problems that uh, we face in the developing part of the world in the education system may be very different from the problems faced in the developing world. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, the, the protesters uh, in Europe, the protests would take a very different form than the ones that we would see uh, in other countries, or even if there are any climate protests at all in the, in the developing world. I think in Europe specifically, maybe what was happening with the climate activists is it's an influential continent, of course. 
a high concentration of wealth, a high concentration of education. And with that falls a large responsibility. And so people are angry because those in power are not doing what, yeah, what they want them to do. Uh, so there's a massive responsibility to do and act uh, when there is that ability to do an act. In the developing world, of course, it's it's completely different. Like you said, with poverty, how can we expect people, if people, can, if people are struggling to eat, they're not going to care about the political system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nobody's going to care about who's in power as long as that person can tell them that their basic needs are going to be met, then that's it. That's all they want. And it's kind of a two-way thing. Um, yeah. And uh, this was... Uh, I quoted this in the article as well, where uh, there was an article in The Economist, and they were, I uh, can't remember the author's name right now, but they were saying how poverty creates vicious cycles and education virtuous ones. And so, of course, you know, in, in the developing world, language is a barrier. Poverty is a barrier yeah. because, so when someone is impoverished, education is secondary. But because education is secondary, it's hard to get out of poverty. It's one of the main means for social mobility. And you mentioned now something about food security, for example. And again, it's a two-way thing, uh, similar to kind of the epiphany, let's say, that happened to me in Kenya when I was there initially looking at food security and development. And I realized that in the environment has a, such a large part to play. And, and we're always talking about this when it comes to climate, right? We're always saying that the main culprits are not the ones that are feeling the impacts of climate change the most. The ones that are feeling the impacts of climate change the most are not the ones that are the main emitters. And that is not, you know, it's not hypothetical. It's because the ones that are not the main emitters are normally the ones that are working and relying on the environment for yeah. their livelihoods. Rural communities, coastal communities, rural and coastal communities, their li entire livelihood depends on the environment. If the environment, anything changes, the temperature changes, the soil features change, anything changes, their entire livelihood goes away they can lose their entire crops and there you go <laughs> they have to move whether to a city or become climate refugees etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. so so again education here is so critical to be able to reach these communities rural and coastal communities yeah. especially those whose livelihoods depend on environment to understand this link because once they understand this link and once they can see oh we need to be able to monitor the soil salinity and the water salinity and uh, and be able to forecast the weather or we yeah. need that from the government government please give us weather forecasts so if there's a heat wave or or you know or whatever happening then they could prepare because everything is happening in different times yeah i mean my own family they have uh, farms and they struggle from that you know uh, heat waves come at different times than they normally did and without an alert system all their crops get burnt and that's it. And not just heat, but also cold waves now. Yes. And so all of these changes, people have to be educated and not just aware, I mean, actually skilled. Yeah. So it's not just an awareness of climate, but actually skilled enough to deal with these changes. How can they deal with agriculture in a changing climate? What crops would be able to tolerate these changing environments? How would they water them? How would they care for them? Uh, so it's not just an awareness of climate. It's actually being skilled um, in adaptation to climate change. Um, and so 
this is so critical for communities that are typically less privileged mm -hmm. because their livelihoods depend on it. And again, in these areas, unfortunately, education is weak. It's, it's a vicious cycle. And of course, with all of that, food security and nutrition is impacted. Yeah. Food security and nutrition impacts well-being, health. And health then impacts productivity and and all of that ends up going cycle. in a cycle as well. Yeah. And of course, gender equality. Once again, when you know, when people are impoverished, the first ones to bear the burden are the girls. Who's pulled out of school to be able to provide for the family first, yeah. often the girls, in uh, places where water isn't available from the tap and they have to walk miles to get water from the closest yeah. well or river, etc. Who does that job or is that role? It's usually the girls. So all of that time that is spent, hours of their day spent walking to get water uh, and back home, just to get water and go back home, is time spent away from studying, yeah. which ends up deterring them in their progress in education. It's so complicated and they keep feeding into each other. Yeah. And so definitely education in, uh, you know, in these areas is is crucial. And one more point is political instability. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of political instability in the Middle East, especially in the recent years, and a lot of climate activists uh, related to climate change. Because of climate change and the lower productivity of the lands in rural areas, families have found themselves once again with lower income, having to move from rural to urban areas, created higher unemployment rates, Higher unemployment rates, of course, created, especially within youth, a lot of anger and a lot of frustration with the governments, and then a lot of the protests uh, begun. Uh, and whether or not it is true that they, the climate was the main culprit behind these, it definitely aggravated what, whatever problems were already there by making, you know, if agriculture, if yeah. the system was already challenging, climate change definitely added to that. Hi there, just a quick one. If you find our conversations worth listening, why don't you share them with your friends and connections? Please help us reach more and new listeners by leaving a review, commenting, or rating us on any platform where you get your podcast. We can't wait to hear your thoughts and ideas, so share them with us via a social media platform or email. Find more details in the show notes. Now let's get back into today's conversation. Wow, so much to unfold from from this. And whilst you were talking, I, I I just thought of this perfect story that sort of summarizes everything that you're saying. And it, this is happening in reality. Currently yeah. in Ghana, we are facing a very big problem that the whole country is sort of, you know, everyone is talking about it. And it's about illegal mining. And mm -hmm. is the fact that when we speak of Ghana, you can think of two main things, gold and cocoa. Ghana produces, I think, is the second largest producer of cocoa in the world. But wow. recently, most of our rivers are getting polluted from illegal mining. And this is so clear and so bad that if you just go to Google Maps and you type any of Ghana's rivers and you go to satellite view and you check it from up, you can see the color of these rivers just compared to any clean river in any part of the world. And you can see how bad this issue is. And there was someone, an old guy who was interviewed recently on the news, and he said that he's turning his cocoa farm, he's a cocoa farmer, to yeah. a site for mining. 
and boldly saying that the government cannot do anything about this. And whilst we were mentioning things about, you know, instability in uh, the, the the government and things about, you know, food insecurity and, and all that, I was thinking about this story because thinking from the man's point of view, he's not able to sell his cocoa at a higher price. Now, illegal miners are making money that he can make in three weeks or a month in a day. So, I mean, if he converts his land to a, to a mining site, why he can easily make money out of it, right? So if you think about it from his point of view, understanding the urgency of, you know, polluting the water does not make sense to him. He's thinking about um, making money today to take care of his family. And you look at him, he's a very old man in his like 70s, right? And this is something that he wants to do. And a lot of people are talking about this whole issue. And I bring it into our conversation. And I find that, I mean, it looks very different for developing nations. Of course, this might look, we're not saying all developing nations are that poor that they cannot have even food to eat. But the, you're looking at the general mass and thinking about, you know, grassroots people, people in remote areas, the everyday people, things that they are concerned about. And I think the issues that you raise these five points are very, very critical. But even as we move on in this conversation, I know that there is a more pressing issue about even the quality of this education system, right? Mm -hmm. And this cuts across, all across, I mean, whether developed countries, um, adult education, formal and informal, because the issue is now we have seen that climate um, issues or sustainability related conversations it sells everyone wants to go green and so if mm -hmm. you go to every company's website there is okay our sustainability approach our sustainability commitment and all that and most of these things are greenwashing but maybe just briefly i just want you to um tackle this a little bit how this has affected the education um, system in terms of sustainability thank you for that question <laughs> david I'll try to be brief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also mentioned another uh, fascinating point that I'll address after this question. <laughs> you talked about uh, greenwashing and then you also talked about the quality of education itself. Yeah. So, of course, the quality of education, I'm assuming that everything I'm talking about, I'm talking about quality, <laughs> quality education. We're not going to, you mentioned about uh, greenwashing in specific. This is major and it's really frustrating and really upsetting because it really throws off any progress that was made or at least kind of it taints the entire mission of, uh, of climate, of sustainability. Yeah. Not everyone is on board, unfortunately, yet. And with anything like that, that, you know, is like a mistake, let's say, yeah. then those that are not on board yet, they jump at that opportunity and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and criticize the entire mission, which is really frustrating because there are people that have been activists for so many years and in decades past, and it's such an important topic. Um, and so for greenwashing to kind of taint all of that is really shameful. And there was actually a recent uh, article in the Financial Times called the BS Index, or it talked about the BS Index. I don't know if you've seen it. Not yet. But it's uh, <laughs> it focused on ESG in, in particular. But I think that kind of it can be broadened to all greenwashing in general. Yeah. It's basically the bullshit index, uh, which is uh, which is really unfortunate uh, because 
you know, the terminologies that are used are often very vague. Maybe it's a mistake of communicators as well. If we're too deep into it, then we use a lot of jargon uh, that maybe <laughs> throws off uh, yeah, a layperson. Exactly. But something is happening here. And, uh, you know, they now have an article on this BS index to sort of make fun of all of the greenwashing that is happening in the industry. Mm. It's very unfortunate. It is very unfortunate. But I wanted also to address, like you, you mentioned something super interesting about the the mining, uh, the water pollution. Again, like I, I, I think a lot of the things I say might sound so idealistic, <laughs> but why not? <laughs> you know, why why should there yes. be a trade off between economy and ecology? <laughs> why are we choosing between those two things? Both are critical. We shouldn't be choosing between our current livelihoods and our future ones. Yeah. That is like, it doesn't make any sense. And so the mechanisms for incentivizing and disincentivizing from governments towards the private sector, towards uh, any kind of business operation need to be much stronger. Like this shouldn't be a trade off. We should be incentivized to be making environmentally conscious businesses and decisions instead of having to choose between one or the other, our current economic well-being or you know, future. Yeah, well, you, you're really getting me to think about um, really a lot of things. But anyways, I mean, in this conversation, I think we have convinced you listening that, I mean, there is a big issue, right? And we're not going to leave you just like that. Um, <laughs> we want to talk about some exciting stuff, like maybe solutions, right? How do we move forward from here? And I'm super excited about some of the things that I shared uh, or I had um, a conversation uh, with um, Elia with you um, about some of the things that you're doing, some of your projects in the past and what you're thinking of doing in the future as well. So how do we move forward from, from here? Is it all bad yet or... There is sort of hope for us to move into the future. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is hope, definitely. There's a lot of good work being done out there. Uh, a lot of uh, innovations in education, a lot of innovations in the approaches to dealing with challenges such as yeah. climate change. I don't know if you've heard about challenge education uh, and that kind of multidisciplinary approach, yeah. uh, bringing people together, trying to look at these problems that we haven't managed to solve for so many years yet, and trying to look at it differently and bringing different minds from different backgrounds together to solve that one issue. So there are kind of innovations in education, definitely. There is so much to be done still. You know, in my opinion, again, I really think that cooperation between governments and the education sector yeah. and education sector with all its players, NGOs, private sector, so not just formal education, but non-formal education, informal education, continuing education, yeah. all of these different pathways to kind of come together. There's a lovely example from Singapore uh, with the Skills Future program, mm. where the government kind of created this umbrella uh, for all of these different pathways to come underneath um, to help people access education uh, in an easy way everything yeah. under one roof mm -hmm. and to be able to select their courses and go on and and you know and continue their their education i think modular education is picking up which is also great there is a lot more availability of courses online and people can train themselves and reskill themselves and get certificates and so on for short term programs uh, that can help them get back into the job market or shift their careers or learn new skills and so on. And so there definitely is hope. The three countries that we mentioned earlier that now have climate science compulsory for every school kid, yeah. that's hope. 
you know, they're, they're only the beginning. Hopefully uh, other countries will follow and make it compulsory. But there are so many NGOs as well. There's a statistic of like over 300 NGOs uh, in the Middle East alone that are working on environmental uh, yeah. education. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is uh, work being done. It came a little bit late. <laughs> but uh, it's here now there's definitely hope and you shared with me a lovely example with climatescience.org as well yeah and uh, you know they're doing amazing work uh, with programs online and in person I believe yeah and here in the UAE where I live as well I mean uh, I'm seeing school programs within schools integrating climate it's compulsory now as well I don't know if it's across the entire UAE but within Dubai schools are all learning about climate yeah yeah well, that's some hope right there. And um, I mean, I'm super excited about that. And of course, you have also made a lot of impact in the space with what you've done in the past. And of course, excited to know what is going to be for the future as well. And I'm sure probably, hopefully from this conversation, um, some people are going to reach out to you. And most importantly, I think what you mentioned that is very, very exciting is whilst we mentioned these approaches or some of the solutions to this, for me, I see it as an opening for the youth to sort of identify job opportunities and sort of identify initiatives to start this conversation. Right? Instead of just waiting for the government to open jobs for you, why don't you link the private sector with the government? Why don't you start an initiative to sort of, you know, bring these conversations on board or start a workshop or a seminar where the government and the NGOs and local and grassroots people can come together to just have a conversation just one time. Who knows? It's going to open people's you know minds to these kind of things. And it could be a form of um, education. So thank you so much for um, for coming and also for, um, you know, diving into these conversations with us. I know it's been a very challenging topic to tackle because this is so complicated with so many branches and wings, but I think we've done lots of justice to this. And of course, there's going to be a follow-up to it. But before I let you go, of course, there is this big occasion that is coming event, uh, which I call the talking point um, stage. Um COP27 is coming and we are all excited about mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, excited because it's just going to happen on in Africa and um, not because of maybe potential outcome, but I just don't want to lose all the hope yet. Maybe there can be something exciting uh, coming up. I Do you have any expectations towards yeah. the upcoming COP? I think we're, uh, first, uh, thank you, David, for all the amazing <laughs> words that you just said. I mean, it's been so lovely uh, speaking with you and getting to know you from, uh, from our previous interactions as well. Yeah. Hopefully more to come. Definitely. Um, about uh, COP27, I think we're all approaching it in the same way that you're approaching it, with a mix between uh, skepticism and hope. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, we have to have hope for a better future. I At think. least. Uh, yeah. We have to have hope. But yeah, we have a good reason to be skeptical, I suppose, as well. Mm-hmm. But for this one in particular, I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, focus on trying to get practical, implementable solutions. Yes. I think there's a lot of focus on financing as well. It sounds kind of maybe... I don't know, it might sound a little bit non-PC, like we were saying earlier, because, you know, often the main people affected by climate are not the main culprits of climate. So I think there's going to be a lot of talk in trying to get some sort of uh, financial support and checks somehow as a fine, as a fine of some sort Uh for those who who created this damage to try and uh, fix it in a way. Um, So I think that's going to take a big part 
um, of COP. Mm -hmm. uh, there is definitely a lot of talk about what can be done. So I'm really hoping that real projects, real agreements can come out of this that are signed <laughs> off, that are there to be implemented, ready. I think, um, you know, we, we know what the problems are. We've known what the problems are for so long. Um, and I, and from the language of COP itself, it seems like they really want to focus on solutions and getting to implementation at this stage. So um, I'm hoping that even if a few, you know, real projects come out of this that get implemented, that would be amazing. But of course, on a, another level, I am kind of upset to not see education in the in the forefront. For sure. Right? Um, there is no education day, even on youth engagement uh, days. I have not seen many uh, topics on education, future future of work, yeah. uh, job preparedness mm -hmm. um, in a country wow. that is, uh, you know, that faces really high unemployment rates, especially yeah. among youth. This is a topic that for me needed to be front and center. So maybe it's not highlighted, uh, you know, on the main agenda, but maybe it's on the sidelines and it's covered Hopefully. somewhere else. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but I certainly uh, hope that this topic gets more uh, light during COP. Yeah, let's wake up people. Um, and I, I honestly, I mean, I have lots of thoughts about um, the, the COP and I have this um, a colleague I work with um, from Czech Republic, Michael Rada, and he's always mentioning that if we really, really, really want to make an impact, why do we prepare for another COP even before a COP is happening in one year? Mm -hmm. And he said this in last year when we're having COP26 because everyone was anticipating for COP27 in Africa and he was like we've not even started COP26 and you're already anticipating that so it means that we know that we will not not achieve the goals of 26 because mm. we are expecting 27 to come and 27 is here and we are hoping for 28 and yeah. it will just keep going and then lots of people just travel to one city you know emit all the carbons that they could and then they just you know go and have chats and uh, drink, eat and spend a lot of money and then come back and make unnecessary promises and then hope that someone is going to finance the money where there is nothing to sort of, you know, guide the person. I mean, well, tell me, if people are going to finance all these things and give that money to the third world country of whatever thing that they say that, okay, this is the damage that we've caused and we are paying here this money for it. Mm -hmm. don't they have other issues in their countries that they are supposed to use those monies for? Because I look at these countries and I listen to the news and they have lots of issues that they need to sort their monies with. And there is no like, you know, law that is sort of binding them to something that, Hey, you have to pay this. Otherwise you lose this. Mm -hmm. I think out of generosity, no one is going to yeah. do it. And so yeah. to be honest, I mean, I want to stay hopeful, but this is very challenging for me, honestly. Yeah. And so, I mean, let's see what happens. But to be honest, I think the youth of today need to pick things on their hand and shouldn't use the approach of, yeah, let's do it and shout on in the streets and do that. But I think we should use the right approach, right? We should Absolutely. do something that could make more impact. And one of the important things is education. And I think you have mentioned it rightly. And thank you so much. I've had a really, really exciting time uh, with you on this conversation. Uh, but just in case that after this call, um, you receive mm -hmm. another call from Marvel Movies and they are asking you that, <laughs> hey, um, I mean, we heard your <laughs> we had your conversation, and we've we've read about your profile, and we think that hey, maybe um, we could give you a superpower for this upcoming movie um, to sort of um, change one thing that 
um, you think is really burdened on your heart. What one thing would you change if you have a special superpower? Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is a challenging question, David. After all that we've discussed, now I'm trying to set my priorities. What would I want to do? If there's a superpower to alleviate poverty, really. (laughs) But that's not true. Actually, it won't solve many things. That's just, uh, this is a very complicated question, David. Now I'm rethinking all my thoughts again. (laughs) What would be the one thing to change that would have the trickle-down effect that gets everything else to get fixed Uh as well? Oh, boy. But I mean, what you mentioned is interesting, though. Very, very (laughs) interesting. I mean, we are all hoping that this money comes so that we can, you know, adapt and build infrastructure and everything. I mean, lots of African activists are hoping that this money could come so that, you know, it could solve all the problem. But just as you mentioned... Yeah, it won't. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't looking at it necessarily in that way, but rather like to alleviate poverty for for the people that are living in poverty. Like it's, uh, I don't want people to live in poverty, but like you said, it won't fix. Like having money won't uh, won't do that. People will always Uh, want more. Yeah, that is a very challenging question, David. Mm -hmm. But it's a really good one. There's already an Egyptian superhero. (laughs) <laughs> oh really will marvel want another <laughs> maybe i'll throw that question back at you david maybe you have <laughs> an interesting one and have a guinea in this i mean to be to be honest i haven't had an answer to this because i keep thinking about what would be the perfect thing because i feel like um the one thing that you want to change would would vary in different um time frames at in different situations but at every moment there is this present thing that is on your heart and i mean to be honest i think that i mean all this conversation that we've had today actually reflects how big an issue this whole thing is and it's super difficult to find one to do but i mean the main goal of this podcast the reason why we started this whole thing is to redefine sustainability in different people's perspectives so i mean just as we close up on on this and before i let you go um, what what does sustainability mean to you in your personal life and what are you doing towards um that meaning yeah, that's also a good question. And I feel like you just inspired my response to the superpower. They're kind Yay. of... <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, sustaining life uh, is, uh, is, uh, is like, let's say the first thing, but the, uh, for fear of getting on that BS index, uh, I'll elaborate. <laughs> Again, like uh, personal observation, in case you haven't noticed, I'm one of those people that learns by uh, through life experience more learning by doing uh so i tend to share my experiences uh, often and reflect on them but um i find that uh happy people tend to uh, want to give back and have the capacity mm-hmm. to care mm-hmm. and uh love for nature and uh, you know happiness and being out in nature and connecting with the environment it helps health mental health, physiological yeah. health, yeah. Envir- and and all of that is connected to environmental well-being. And so um, and so that's kind of now related to the superpower. But for me, sustainability is is not just sustaining the environment. Sustaining um, our health means we are eating healthy, which usually means we are eating food that has been produced 
uh, in a sustainable way. Yeah. When we are out in the environment and we care for the environment, it nicely translates into us by having this uh, nice exchange of bacteria between soil and nature and our <laughs> yes. own bodies mm-hmm. increases and boosts our immunity, which in turn also increases and boosts our mental well-being. So it's all kind of connected. Uh, we are nature, right? We are. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that disconnect makes us unhappy that disconnect makes us unhealthy and makes us unsustainable this is what sustainability is to me it's uh, it's just loving life and wanting to sustain life all of life all of living things us and all our surroundings and that actually now inspired my uh, uh, my superpower I would want everybody to kind of have that weight lifted off their shoulders off their hearts and Ooh. just be happy and connected and Hopefully that would bring people to be more positive and be more giving and caring and so on. Wow. Sighting. Oh, goodness. What, <laughs> what a very interesting conversation we've had today. Um, my, I really, really appreciate your time. Every bit of this conversation was super exciting. I think I'm just going to have a very exciting time going over this conversation over and over. And I must say, this has been one of the challenging uh, topics that I've ever tackled on this on, on this podcast. And I'm super excited I could do that with you because you did justice to this. Thank you so much for coming, for honoring the invitation and making this so easy and uh, so smooth uh, to put this out there. Do you have any last words before we part? And uh yeah, I will always appreciate this time we had. No, I just want to thank you so much, David, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, honestly, it's such a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure working with you. I really admire the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, I encourage everyone to listen to the other podcasts um, on the Green Living Chats podcast. And uh, you're doing amazing work. Uh, covering all sorts of topics on sustainability, bringing people from all over the world. I'm a big fan now and, uh, (laughs) you know, I admire your work and I wish you the best of luck and really thank you so much. You're the one that made it so easy and so enjoyable this entire process. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think it's very encouraging to hear those words from you as well. And as you mentioned, um, actually about food insecurity, um, we just released an episode on food insecurity. So I'm sure you're going to be, uh, you're going to enjoy this um, so much. And anyone out there, please, um, you can dive into the show notes to see more about how to get in touch with Maya. And for sure, um, she's so exciting to work with and uh, she's available for uh, collaborations in this space and presentations and and I mean, anything that you want her to do, if you're thinking of interesting collaborations in the space of um, uh, climate education or sustainability education, please do get in touch with her. And I'm sure you're going to have exciting time. So, um, Mai, thank you so much for coming. And let's do this again soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, David. And happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> hey there. Thank you so much for sticking to the end of this episode. Now there is a call to action. So why don't you engage with our community of Green Chatters on our social media platforms? Find more details and links in the show notes. Get involved with the podcast by emailing us at glcpodcast at echoamidsolutions.com or DM via our social media platforms. We cannot do the same things expecting different results. The agency of climate change demands actions now and not in 2050. So dear Green Chatters, see you on the next episode and remember, live green.